Let's pray. Father, I just thank you that you are a God who leads. You're a God who makes the way clear. From the beginning to the end of your scriptures, we see this God who desperately wants to be the shepherd of his people, the one who speaks and a people who respond. I thank you for that picture. And Lord, as I've already said, our desire is only ever to follow your leading. We acknowledge that you are our Lord and we pray that you would lead us this day as we read from your scriptures and you would lead us into this season. Would this be all that you desire it to be? All the things that are before us, Lord, would we look with great expectancy despite anything we might see in the natural towards the God who makes a way, the God who's at work, this glorious God who is accomplishing his purposes and plans in this earth and our joy that it is to be a part of what you're doing at this time, in this season, in this nation, even in the suburb of Fishwick. Who would have thought that you could find the living God here? But Lord, we thank you that you're with us and you're for us. And so we entrust to you all that is before us, and we entrust to you this time now we spend together. Speak to our hearts, encourage us, shape us, mold us, edify us through the power of your spirit, through your living word, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 So grab out your Bibles. We're going to turn over to 1 John. We've made it as far as chapter 2. So we're picking up steam. What are we, four months in? To a period of time where we're really trying to see what the Lord would speak to us through this wonderful letter. Remembering, of course, that John writes in the midst of uncertain times. Certainly a lot of parallels to our culture and our times today. And he writes to bring certainty. With great certainty, he writes about light and dark. He writes about sin and salvation. And he writes about, as we're going to read today, truth and lies. We talked, of course, last week about the genuine article, when there's so many imitations, how do you spot the genuine article? The reality that if you're shopping on internet shopping, on eBay, and you find a $10,000 designer handbag for $10, there is a good chance that it may not be the genuine article. Good chance, just saying. How do we spot it? What does it look like? This certainty that John writes to us about. We're going to see a context, and then we're going to see a command in the midst there. So let's read together 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Instantly some ears are pricked up. That sounds intriguing. Others are already nodding off perhaps. Bear with me. There's something in here for us. The Antichrist is coming, but even now many Antichrists, plural, have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. And verse 20 is where we're going to head as our encouragement. But I want us to focus for a moment on the context. What is the context of the command that John will give us? Let me introduce it this way. I've watched with some interest over the last couple of weeks as Mark Zuckerberg, who is the founder and CEO of Facebook, has fronted up to a U.S. Congress hearing about Facebook's use of data. Has anyone watched that particular event unfold? It's been fascinating to see some of these figures. And for those who perhaps haven't 
caught up to speed with it. Facebook uses the data that you provide for those who do use Facebook, which I know is some of you perhaps more than you should. Uses the data you provide, where you live, how old you are, combining it with geographic information from your phone to tailor ads to a certain audience. Remember uh, someone uh, probably six months or so ago now just got a new app on their phone. They said, look, this is amazing. I can log on to this app and I can see everywhere I've been, everything I've done, every purchase. And I said, that's not amazing. That is freaky. That is scary. But the reality is that you can charge more money for ads the more specific the audience is. And Facebook and Google have become experts at the use of personal data to tailor advertisements. Here's some figures. Those two companies alone made over $40 billion in the last three months from advertising revenue. $40 billion from all your little clicks. How many of you click on those little ads? This is your problem. This is your issue. $40 billion, that equates, that's over three months, to $300 million of revenue every day or $16.5 million every hour. This is incredibly profitable, but it's also incredibly powerful. And here comes the issue. What responsibility, if any, does Facebook have to actually look after data? And even more than that, what responsibility, if any, do they have for monitoring that which is sold to people? So what came out in these hearings, and bear with me, there is a point here, was the power that Facebook has to actually shape the course and the direction of elections and even a nation. And so Mark Zuckerberg himself apologised for his role in what was perceived to be external opinions that were fed into Facebook and used to shape the outcome of the recent US election. Whether or not that was the case, we will never know. But certainly, the claim of Congress, and even Mark Zuckerberg himself, is that Facebook can shape a culture. And interestingly, they're shaping it with what? Not with truth. They're shaping it with opinions, and in some case, blatant lies. We are a society that is obsessed with opinions. We've got an opinion on anything. But we have come away from the reality and the need for truth. So I want us to look at this context that John is painting for us. He says, first of all, it is the last hour. Now, <clears throat> we could say a couple of things about this, but certainly John lived with this anticipation and the expectation of the soon coming return of Jesus. He did. All the apostles did. They lived with this assurance that, A, he was coming back. And I guess if you imagine John, he was there. He'd seen Jesus. He'd witnessed his death on the cross. He'd seen the risen, resurrected Lord. And he'd seen him as he ascended to heaven. And it says, as the disciples stood there dumbfounded, I think mouths hanging open, the angel appeared. says, what are you looking at? Imagine him thinking, what do you think we're looking at? He's just gone up into the clouds. But the angel gave them assurance. Surely I tell you that he will come back the same way that he left. So they live with this anticipation that it is the final epoch, the final time period of human history, that Jesus has come and then he is coming back to establish his kingdom. But there's certain things that will just define this period. And John outlines those for his readers and for us in verse 18. He says, it's the last hour and we know it's the last hour because you know, the Antichrist is coming, but even now, many Antichrists has come. Now, he doesn't explain exactly what that means. What does that look like? What does that mean for us, other than the perhaps eschatological 
eschatologically minded people who want to talk about who the Antichrist is. Let's look at what that context actually says because it then sheds light on what John will say. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to look at the Antichrist just because we can. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the Antichrist? All right, let's move on very quickly. 2 Thessalonians 2. And what I want to get to is, is, is what is this pain about the context that John is telling us that he's going to speak a command in the midst of? It says this, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. So instantly there should be a key. What is going to mark this whole period? Great deception. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. It's talking about the return of Christ. And until, unless the rebellion, the apostasy, the great deception, some translations say, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Another term for this person that John is calling the Antichrist single. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming him to be God. We know a lot about this particular person, about who he is and about what he will do. And here, Paul is telling the Thessalonians, he will oppose every so-called God, and then ultimately he will proclaim himself to be God. Let's jump down to verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, talking about this person who will eventually proclaim himself to be God, will lead people into deception. Verse 9, coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So what is it that marks this particular moment in human history? As it said, as it opened up in verse 3, do not be deceived. This will be a period of great deception. And I think one of the saddest verses in the whole New Testament is verse 11. Just to finish it off, it says, Therefore God sends them, being those who are perishing, those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There comes a point, I believe, that what this is saying is that the Lord says, Well, if, if you've made up your mind to deny the truth, then I will hand you over to that delusion. That deception. So there is a future Antichrist yet to come. And yet we read here that John is telling us the Antichrist is coming, but his spirit, if you like, or the work or the manifestation of Antichrists are already at work in the world. What does he mean by that? Well, he's not the only one to talk about this picture, this picture of what it will look like before the return of Christ. Jesus himself did in Matthew 24, verse 24. Jesus' words, he says this, For false Christs, false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so, if, so as to deceive, that word again, if possible, if possible, even the elect. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul says to his spiritual son Timothy, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to what? To deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 2 Timothy verse 4, chapters Chapter 4, verse 3 to 4. For the time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn their ears away from the truth. Who's feeling a little encouraged this morning after reading all those passages? 
They're not your go-to morning devotional encouragement passages, are they? But here's what John is trying to say. He's trying to paint a picture of a reality. Think of it this way. I, as a father, I have great love for my children. And there's always this tension. They're they're young-ish still at this stage. It's a great tension as a father about how much do I expose them and prepare them for what they will face. Because everything within me as a father just wants to wrap them in cotton wool, keep them inside, just tell them life's going to be wonderful and it's all roses and strawberries, it's lovely, nothing's ever going to hurt you, nothing's ever, nothing will come against you, it's just the, the world is wonderful. And yet I know that the reality out there is very different. I mean, that's fine if somehow I manage to restrain them in my house for their entire lives. But the moment they walk out the front door, they're going to realize that there's difficulties in life, there's struggles, there's, tr- there's, there's a reality And so how do I prepare them for what they're going to face so that they don't go out there and completely fall apart when they realize that there's potholes and there's difficulties and there's struggles and it's a part of life. And at the moment, even even just last night, I flicked on the news and there was a lot happening. It's going to be a big month in the Middle East. It was talking about clashes on the Gaza border. And for one of my girls who's very sensitive, she said, it's too much, turn it off, I can't, I can't. And I mean, the news can be graphic. There's pictures of violence and... But this is Paul in, uh, sorry, this is John here with his loving grandfatherly heart saying, we need to be prepared. We don't, as Christians, want to just you know, put the blinkers on and hide away and just pretend that everything's going to be lovely and rosy. In fact, he says, this is how we know that Jesus is coming back, that there is antichrist, that there is lies, that there is deception all around us in the world. We've got to be prepared. Otherwise, A, we're going to fall apart, but B, we're also not going to be effective. See, all the apostles, not just John, had this in mind. There will be this season in ever-increasing regularity where lies and deception and evil is present in the world. Now, I could preach another sermon about how I believe that as we approach the end times that we will see the Lord doing some incredible things, that there will be an outpouring of his spirit. There's there's two sides to the same coin. But all of that to say that there is a reality that we are facing now. I mean, that John was facing 2,000 years ago. That's why he wrote these words. So in one sense, it's always going, always will be there. From the Garden of Eden, all Satan did was come and present lies. That's what he did. That's what he does. Scripture states his native language, that there will be lies and deception, but it will increase until the ultimate manifestation of that is when the Antichrist comes on the scene with great deception and with the great apostasy that Peter is talking about in Second Thessalonians. So John is writing to a people some 2,000 years ago, and here's the encouragement with that context. Are you ready? We're all sufficiently prepared for the encouragement. Here it is. Verse 20, in that season he says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is on the truth. Let's just, no lie is of the truth. Let's unpack that for a little bit. We've been anointed and we have all knowledge. What is John saying there? Is he saying that we have all knowledge? Hands up if you have 
found out that you know everything. Where are the teenagers? Need some, they're all gone. We need some teenagers. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we have all knowledge. In fact, this word here, it says, we've literally been anointed. The Holy Spirit has come. And the word for you have all knowledge often is translated in the New Testament more often than not is it describes seeing. Your, your eyes have been opened. Seeing and even in some contexts is experiencing with your five senses. So it's really saying that the Holy Spirit of God has actually opened up your eyes to see the reality of truth. That's what it's saying. There's something supernatural that has happened. Your, your eyes have been enlightened. That there is a world whose and a lie whose natural language is lies and deception, and their lives, are sh- their lives are shaped by opinion and lie. But you, as the ones who have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, your eyes have been opened. And therefore, he says, I'm not writing to tell you the truth. I'm just writing to remind you of its power. Allow truth to define you. See, we live, as we talked about last time, in this tension between the world and the Father. And, and we said that, the, or John says, and we talked about last time, the fact that we can love the Father or we can love the world. That the affections of the world are in opposition to the love of the Father. And the same way we live in this tension where lives are, are very genuinely shaped by opinion. And people are making some incredible money out of it. Whereas we as the believers, we live with this call not to define truth, but to be defined by truth. He's saying recognize the power of truth. And I want to show a short video. I know there's, we could talk about when it comes to truth, when it talk, comes to lies and deception, I could pick any one of dozens of issues both within the church and without the church. So I don't want to make anything particularly big of this particular issue, but I think it is just a powerful illustration and example about the place or the lack of place for truth in our current society. And then I want to talk about, after we view it, how we should respond to the world in which we're living. Because that's what John's getting to. He's saying, recognize that this, this world is all around you, and that's just the way it is, and I love you, and I want you to be prepared, but we do have a mission and a purpose to fulfill in the midst of that. So let's watch the video if we can, if it's ready. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go, and is it possible to be wrong. We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, (laughs) yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, why? <laughs> really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I would say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. <laughs> I would maybe think you had 
some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out of my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel, like, mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're 6'5". If you truly believed you're 6'5", I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you're six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a 5'9 white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman. But clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? That's it. Thank you. It's always interesting watching people watch that. There was a few very nervous laughs in the first service. I think certainly from a Christian point of view, we're like, should we be finding that funny? Should we be like crying? Should we? What? What? What is our response? And as I said, I don't want to make more of one particular issue because we could look at a lot of different issues. But what does that say about our culture? It. It. It is a culture that is being shaped by opinion at best and lies at worst, rather than the truth. And for those who think, oh, well, that's America, you know, the crazy Americans and it's not an issue over here, let me just say that 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 is something that we are facing. I was having dinner, Ali and I were having dinner on Friday night with a Presbyterian pastor from town, and he was sharing that in their youth group, they have kids at a college. And in one of the public colleges here in, in our city, there's currently three kids in the friendship group who are all transitioning from one gender to another gender. And it's actually quite, it's fashionable, it gets a lot of attention, it's almost a trendy thing to do. And in fact, there's a, there's a, it's not just teenage kids, there's a teacher I know of in our church who was struggling this year 
teaching a child who last year was a boy and this year is now identifying as a girl and got a new name. And how do we, how do we wrestle? And there's a couple of things I'd say. So often there's a tendency to see these things as problems. Well, this is a problem we need to fight. But we've got to remember that our mission as believers is never to fight problems. It's to see people saved. I don't see problems here. I see people who need truth. They need light shining in the midst of the darkness. And all I want to do is to stir our hearts, as John is stirring the hearts of his readers, to say there is a battle for truth. I mean, there always has been to some level. There has. The enemy is always going to come along and bring lies and deception. But it is heading, Scripture tells us, in one direction only. And we've got to be ready. Jude talks about it in his wonderful little book. He says, I was just going to write to you, and I was going to tell you how wonderful our salvation is. And, and believe me, as a preacher, there's a tendency. There's passages that you could go to. You could preach wonderfully encouraging, exhorting, edifying scriptures. And from time to time, that's a good thing to do. But Jude said, but, but no, I was compelled. I was compelled in the midst of all that you're facing to tell you to contend for faith. Contend for that which you believe. To fight for truth. See, here's the reality as I watch a video like that, as I see what's going on in the world, but even within the church. There is a need for truth. And I want us, first of all, to be certain of our truth, but second of all, to realize what we carry. There's never been an age, I think, where the light can shine so brightly in the midst of the darkness. There is a need for truth. And we carry that light. We carry that message of hope. We carry that message of purpose and of meaning. You know, if we realized the importance of truth, its power, we would be savoring it, we would be celebrating it, and we would be proclaiming it with all passion in our heart. John 8, 32, that you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Isn't that what we need? We need this truth that sets us free. And, and I want to just make this one observation, and then we'll bring this to a, a close if the worship team wants to come out because we're going to do communion and get ready. You know, we are in an era, even within the church, where the mantra is of that, like that particular video, well, we don't know. We don't really know. I mean, the scriptures are confusing, and, and, and people disagree on theology. We, we don't know, do we? Like, can we ever know anything with certainty? Whereas Jesus has gone to such extreme lengths to come and to proclaim that he is the truth. And I can tell you with all certainty that there is no issue that we're facing in today's society. There's no issue that we've faced in the last 2,000 years since the time of Christ. And there will be no issue that we'll face for the next however many years until he returns again that Scripture does not speak clearly on. It speaks clearly on every issue in advance of, of every problem, problem that we will face. But our urgency as believers is to allow our lives to be defined by truth. In a world that is defined so powerfully and so profitably by opinion and by lies. We need to make sure that we are a people whose lives are defined by truth, the unchanging, unfailing 
reality of truth. Anchored into truth. Either we will seek to define truth or we will be defined by it. And there's some other aspects of truth that we'll cover as we go forth in future weeks. But I want to leave you with that thought. What is it that's shaping your life? Is it opinion? Is it what the world's saying? Or is it the truth of Scripture? And I'm the first to say that's not always pleasant. It's not always easy as a pastor to stand up and read passages like we've read. Talk about the Antichrist. Talk about difficulties. But I feel that it's necessary for us to be prepared. Not only so that we can stand, but so that we can recognize the incredible call that we have to bring light into a never-darkening world. And to not be ashamed for that. That is, the, the world doesn't realize it, but to pray that the Lord would awaken and open the eyes of people to see the beauty and the power of his truth. So we're going to have communion. Put your Bibles away. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, as we've all already prayed today, Lord, I thank you that you are a God who leads us, that you're a God who makes the way clear. And that, Lord, even in issues that are sometimes difficult to navigate, even when we feel like perhaps we don't have all the answers, I thank you that you are the God who promises to lead us in all truth. Thank you that you have come. Lord, I see and reflect upon scriptures and videos as we've seen. And, Lord, I am so profoundly thankful that you would come to open up our eyes, to open up our understanding to who you are, to the reality of your truth. And that would be my prayer for us, that you would open up our eyes. And in a world that is shaped by opinions, that's shaped even oftentimes by lies, Lord, that the truth of who you are would be the very thing that defines us and that we would hold steadfast in the reality of your truth. And that we would be people who boldly go forth to bring your truth with all love to a world that is in desperate need of the reality of who you are. Pray that in Jesus' name.